Now, uh, we're entering the teaching time of our worship service, and uh, we have been studying the parables of Christ, the parables of Jesus. And we have been saying that Jesus' parables are earthly stories about heavenly realities. Here's how God sees us. Here's how God sees the world. This is the way God sees it. So we're, we're looking at something that's just more than earthly stories about, um, you know, spiritual thoughts. We're looking at the lens of God. Here's how he sees our lives. And so we're going to continue this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. 1 through 14. You'll find that on page 875 of your church Bibles. There are uh, copies of God's Word in the tray below your chair or adjacent to you or in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, I would love for you to take a copy and put your name in it and uh, take it home with you and receive it as a gift from the, from the church family. And so you'll see in Luke chapter 16 at the very beginning that it is subtitled the parable of the dishonest manager. You see that? The parable of the dishonest manager. Uh, I actually want to put a tag on this message. The gift of the two-minute warning. Say that with me. The gift of the two-minute warning. There. Hear these words from the Lord. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my, manager, since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager, for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This is the word of the Lord. The gift of the two-minute warning. Last week I was watching one of the several NFL games where the contest was decided in the last two minutes. While I was sitting there, actually while I was laying there on the couch getting ready to take my nap, the thought occurred to me, why is there a two-minute warning in the NFL? I'm sure you've wondered that. Maybe not. But humor me for a minute. Why, why, why is it, let's go there, why is it in the NFL when the game clock shows two minutes remaining at the second and fourth quarters and in overtime, play is suspended for exactly two minutes? Who thought that up? Who thought that up? I got curious about that. So I thought I would just find out. And here's what I found out. So there was a time, you may know this already, bear with me. There was a time in a American professional football when there was no stadium clock. And the official time clock was a stopwatch held by one of the referees. So that meant that neither team knew exactly how much time was left before halftime or the end of the game. So the referee started to alert each team when the game was about to end. Now, according to Pro Football Hall of Fame archivist John Kendall, in 1942, that was the first year that the two-minute warning appeared in the rule book. But then in 1949, it, in, it added an automatic timeout. See? So here's something else interesting. When stadium clocks first appeared, they weren't the official time clocks. It was only in the 1960s that the NFL stadium clocks showed the official time. You with me? Which means that when the stadium clock and the official time clock were merged and everybody could see it, you really didn't need the two-minute warning, did you? Because everybody could see it. But the two-minute warning's not going away. You know that. It, it's become a, an important component of game strategy. At two minutes, the fog is cut. At, at two minutes, the goal is clarified. At two minutes, uh, efforts are intensified. 
At the two-minute mark, there's a test of a team's ability to perform under pressure as they execute the two-minute drill. The two-minute warning adds suspense and excitement for the fans. And the two-minute warning, I mean uh, 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 the, uh, the, the networks, they love the two-minute warning because it's lucrative. They can sell more airtime for commercials. Yeah, yeah, the two-minute warning. That's why there's a two-minute warning. It's a parable for us. You don't have all day. See, our text today is about someone who didn't have all day. He, he had given, been given the gift of the two-minute warning. You see that? Do you hear that? And, and here's what's different about our, our guy. Whereas spectators and players and coaches can see the, the two-minute warning coming on the game clock, right? Five minutes, four minutes, three minutes, two minutes. Here's what's different about this guy in Luke 16. He couldn't see it coming until it came. He's just living his life. He's doing what he does. He's waking up, going to work, coming home, sleeping, eating, drinking. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, a referee in zebra-striped shirt appears and says, this is your two-minute warning. And whatever that guy was doing, however he was acting, his routine habits, rhythms, and rituals, they were abruptly halted with this this, uh, uh, alerted phrase, this is your two-minute warning. What? What? You have two minutes left. Whatever your priorities are, whatever goals you set, whatever projects you're working on, you have two minutes, and then you're done. Game's over. I think Jesus is trying to tell us something about reality parables are about reality and it's this you don't have all day you don't you have two minutes two minutes verse one jesus spoke to his disciples there was a rich man who had a manager this rich man learned that his manager his steward the one who was charged with with growing his estate this man had been squandering that which did not belong to him verse one he was wasting his possessions that's the same verb as in luke chapter 15 when the younger son squandered his father's estate. This manager was wasting what did not belong to him. And he was summoned one day out of nowhere to the, to the boss man's office. Verse 2, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Go get your laptop, your cell phone, your files, the spreadsheets, settle up with your debtors. This is your two-minute warning. And clearly the accusation was true because the manager didn't protest. And suddenly he's out of a job. Here is a man who is running out of time. His world is coming apart. He's under the pressure of the urgency. Verse 3 says the manager said to himself, What shall I do? What shall I do? You better circle that. Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. So he knew himself, didn't he? 
You know, digging and begging were just above slavery on the social ladder in the first century. What shall I do? On being served notice of his last two minutes, he sees that he has a limited amount of time and a limited amount of opportunity to secure his future. How can I leverage my limited for my tomorrow? Oh my goodness, the clock is running. I don't have any more timeouts. What? I know, verse 4. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So this guy begins to call uh, each of his boss's debtors in one at a time. Verse 5, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he says to the first, how much do you owe my master? I owe a hundred measures of oil, olive oil, hundred measures. How much is that? That's 875 gallons. That's how much that is. It's huge. It's, it's, the, it's the annual yield of an olive grove of 150 trees. It's, it's a thousand days wages. So take whatever your wages are and almost triple them. There it is. And in the stroke of a pen, half of it goes away. Half of it vanishes. Verse 6. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and, and, and write 50. Really? Absolutely. Okay. As the guy leaves, he says, thank you. Thank you. I mean, if I can ever help you, please let me know. Well, believe me, I will. <laughs> and then the next debtor comes in, verse 7. He said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures. That's, that's 1,200 bushels of wheat. He said, take your bill, write 80. Really? Is this legal? Of course it is. It's a one-time offer. Today only. And don't say nothing to nobody. And the guy signs the paper. So back then, the debtors wrote out the IOUs in their own handwriting. That's what's behind that. And, and, the, and, the, and so this debtor leaves with a fifth of his debt gone. Wow. Thanks. If you ever need anything, I know where you live. I mean, this went on all day long. 50% here, 20% there. Each debtor left grinning ear to ear, and none of them knew that the guy was about to lose his job. Yeah. And at the end of the day, after settling with the very last client, the buzzer sounded, the game ended. The manager turned in his laptop, his cell phone, his flash drive, his Excel files, his QuickBooks, game over. He goes home. And that night, the rich man, the boss man, he kind of scoops up the manager's contracts and he's begun to sift through them and he looks at them and he's, huh. This doesn't seem right. I, I thought our contracts were worth more. Then he, then he notices this, this paper. This is, this is new paper. The dates are all the same. And as Jesus tells the story, you, you know what's going to happen next, don't you? I mean, you know, you can just... Yeah, the boss man is going to call the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network from the U.S. Department of Treasury, 
agents will obtain a search warrant after which they're going to raid this former manager's home and they're going to take his personal computers and files and they're going to rifle through his home office and his personal effects and then they're going to arrest him and question him and charge him and try him and convict him and sentence him and he's going to be cellmates with Sam Banks for the rest of his life. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, you know. You know that's what happened. But that's not what happens, is it? No, no, no. No, Jesus says that when the boss man saw all that the manager had done, the boss man, finally the light bulb kind of went on for the, for the boss man. And he just, he looks up and he just grins. And the first word that comes to his mind was, Brilliant. Brilliant. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager. Commended. Lauded. Praised. Approved of. And why? Not for his dishonesty. Not for his corruption. Not for his unrighteousness. He commended him because he acted shrewdly. This guy gave a master class in clock management. This guy executed the two-minute drill better than anything we've ever seen from Patrick Mahomes. This guy had a limited time with limited opportunity and limited ability over resources that did not belong to him, and he leveraged it to secure his future. Brilliant! And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, I wish you were more like him. What? Yeah. Yeah, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Verse 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. There it is. You want to know how God sees reality? Now you know. Do you, do you know at this very moment, right here, right now, people are getting up early and staying up late. They're dreaming and scheming and planning and obsessing about how they're going to succeed in this world. How they're going to get ahead. At this very moment, some CEO somewhere is ridiculously focused. She's using all of her energy and all of her imagination and all of her intelligence and passion in the pursuit of, of profit. She has investors and she has a board of directors and they want a return and she'd better deliver. Do you know at this moment, right here, right now, some professor at the University of Illinois is pouring effort and energy and emotion into tenure. You know that, don't you? At this very moment, a make-or-break exam is being studied for. At this very moment, surgeons are practicing on a da Vinci robotic surgical machine. They're, they're suturing olives and grapes, developing proficiency for human organs. 
at this very moment. At this very moment, a, a student pilot is rehearsing and re-rehearsing the landing of a 747 flight simulator. Yeah. Years ago, at the 2016 Winter Olympics, an athlete by the name of John Daly, not the golfer, John Daly was competing in the skeleton event. The skeleton event is a sledding event, a, a, a downhill ice track, head first, face down, the thing goes 80 plus miles per hour. And John Daly came out of retirement to train for the games, which meant two-a-day workouts, the first at 5 a.m., then he goes to his regular job for eight hours, then the second workout, and he did this six days a week. And, and when fall arrived, Daly drove nine hours to Lake Placid on Fridays for training. He would then fly to Europe for World Cup competitions. His diet was predictable. It was his, for breakfast, two eggs and Greek yogurt, chicken and veggies, six days a week, like clockwork. That was it. And all of this all of this training, all of those efforts for a medal or a salary or a retirement that will not last beyond this life. And Jesus' point is not those bad worldly people, shame on them. No, 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 no. His point, can we learn from them? Should the people of God do any less for the things of God? Jesus says in this parable, I'm looking for Olympic-level urgency concerning my Father's eternal purposes. That's what's going on here in chapter 16. So, so here's our big idea. Time is short. Be shrewd. Time is short. Be shrewd. And, and then Jesus says this, verse 9. Listen to this. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What do you make of that? Well, let's, let's unpack that. Verse 9. Wealth. That's the word, and some of your translations have the word mammon. Mammon. Uh, mammon, it, it's a Greek word that comes from a Hebrew word. And it's a very broad word. It, it literally means that in which one trusts. That in which one trusts. Or, or that which provides security. Or that which establishes or establishes me. So you see how, see how broad it is? And, and so you can tell then from this context why it's referred to as wealth, but it's a broader term than wealth. It could be wealth, it could be money, it could be possessions, power, education, your estate, anything of value, anything of value, mammon, mammon. And then, and then there's this word unrighteous mammon, unrighteous mammon. That, that is the mammon that exists in this unrighteous world, in this unrighteous world. This world is sinful, broken, and fallen. And so, therefore, mammon's best use is leveraging it for gospel friendships. And that's the phrase, make friends. Make friends. Gospel friendships, gospel purposes, gospel relationships, so that when it 
fails, what's it? Mammon. So that when mammon fails, and when will mammon fail? When, when will the mammon of this world fail you? When you die. When you die. Listen, when I die and when Warren Buffett dies, both of us will leave the same percentage of mammon. So that when it fails, they, who's that? The friendships that you've made in the name of the gospel will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So when this life is swallowed up by the life to come, may the mammon God entrusted to us have been used so that we will all be together in the eternal house of God. Time is short, be shrewd. Time is short, be shrewd. H.B. Charles, who preaches in Jacksonville, Florida, tells this illustration. He says, I want you to imagine living in the South during the U.S. Civil War, and you've accumulated a large amount of Confederate currency. And you discern that the Union will win the war, and your money will be useless. What are you going to do? H.B. Charles says, cash in your Confederate money for Union currency and keep only enough to meet your basic needs until the war is over. And why? H.B. Charles says, because it is foolish to hoard the currency of a doomed empire. And Jesus has provided his followers inside information on a coming worldwide change in our social and economic and governmental order. When, when Jesus comes, there will be no election. He will come as king. And the currency of this world will be useless when we die or when he returns, whichever comes first. And that reality, that reality must radically inform the way we use mammon. And that leads me to this parable's critical question. What shall I do? What shall I do? So, so, so it's, a, it's a question uh, about a test, a test of faithfulness. And that's what's behind verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? What shall I do? What, what shall I do in the two minutes I have? See? So, so this question takes us deeper than, than what shall I do to get to heaven? No, 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 it's this, it's this. Will anybody be in heaven because of anything I've done? Will anybody be in heaven because I, I prayed for them? Because I made the ask? Because I, I asked, would you, like to, would you like to come to church with me? Do you ever think about spiritual matters? Would you like to sit with me in church on Sunday? Is anybody going to be in heaven because I used the mammon on loan 
to me by God to bring people to God. So, so this, this encompasses how I use my home, how I use my car, how I use my time, how I use my time at work. How can I use God's mammon to introduce others to God? That's what's going, that's the question. What shall I do? And so let's consider some spheres, some domains of mammon, thinking of just mammon of presence, mammon of presence. Some of us can no longer be physically present at church for Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or or our, our New Year's celebrations. Well, can we bring those holidays and that love to them? Can we? Can we hold a hand, lift a prayer, read a scripture, offer a smile, give a hug? These small expressions during the holidays mean so much because it's it's about stewarding the mammon of our presence. What about the mammon of table fellowship? A, A simple expression of friendship is sharing a meal together in Christian fellowship. So perhaps Sometime in the next, between now and the end of the, end of the year, you can have some coffee time or lunch time with no agenda but just to share life and to laugh together. The mammon of presence, the mammon of table fellowship. And yes, there's the mammon of power. So that is to say, God, you have placed me in this position of responsibility. How can I use the responsibilities of this position to help others flourish. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? It also involves the mammon of money. And maybe there's someone whose Christmas would be sweeter by someone else's act of sharing. See? You see what I'm saying? Mammon belongs to God and is stewarded by us for the benefit of others. Yeah. But here's the deal. It's time-sensitive, right? Jesus is teaching us that we cannot be fully devoted followers and remain clueless about the the timing, the time-sensitive nature of our expenditure of mammon. We're we're on the clock. Mammon management and time management are spiritual commodities requiring spiritual decisions. When the late Pastor Tim Keller was first diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, this is what he said. He said, I would say that as a man who was 69 years old, that was the time of his diagnosis, I was actually pretty unfocused because the reality is it doesn't matter whether you have cancer or not. When you're approaching 70, you really ought to actually know that the time is short. You don't really have decades anymore. Keller said, so I should have been more focused, but I was, I was just tending to do whatever anybody asked me to do. You're a nice person. You're a minister, so you do what anybody asks you to do. Keller said, I had no focus. I really didn't. I wasn't, I wasn't asking, you know, if I finally had one year left, two years, three, four, five, what should I be doing? I didn't have that focus. Now I do. And he finished strong. And Keller shows us that embracing our time on earth as a limited resource has really an incredible power to liberate us when you think about it. I mean, think, if you knew you just had a month to live, it's December 31st, and you get to go to glory, wouldn't you live it differently? Wouldn't you be more authentic? Wouldn't you be more deliberate? Wouldn't you be more focused? 
Wouldn't you take the risk to have hard conversations? Wouldn't you say yes to the essentials and no to the non-essentials? Wouldn't you be more unoffendable? Of course, all of these questions prompt the bigger question. What keeps us from living this way right now? Why don't all of us live more like we're dying? Isn't that how we're meant to live in the first place? To discover why we're here and then use our gifts in the limited amount of time that God has given us? See, that, see that's what Jesus did when Jesus was 12. He said to his parents, I have to be about my father's business. And just before he died on the cross, some 20 plus years later, he said, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Oh, I can't begin to describe how happy believers are who steward the mammon from God to them to influence people for Christ. And when you think about it, that's what happened to you. Isn't that why you're here today worshiping? Someone used the mammon God gave them, their possessions, their income, their influence, their time. Someone managed their mammon to bring you to Christ. Someone did that for you so that you could be friends with them forever in heaven with both of you serving Jesus. And if you just wrap your mind around that church family, that would just literally transform how you see stuff, it would. You'd probably pitch some stuff. You'd probably give some other stuff away. You'd probably make some purchases that you hadn't thought about because of their kingdom impact. The idol of American economy identifies us as consumers. But King Jesus has told us to be shrewd, strategic managers an advent season reminds us that we worship the god who impoverished himself for us so that we might live with him forever i'm thinking of what the apostle paul said in second corinthians 8 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich Oh, listen, listen. People might consume their way into ruin, but people don't strategically manage their way with God's mammon into financial ruin. Stewards of God are called to manage the mammon of God with the intention of building the community of God, friendships, so that we will forever worship and serve the Son of God. And that's why we're here. Amen? So, so, so the answer, the answer is pretty clear to that question. What shall I do? <laughs> here. Well, here, <laughs> time is short. Be shrewd. Hmm. So there's this swanky castle in southern England. It's called uh, High Clear Castle. You recognize that? Yeah. That's the castle where they shot the film or the series Downton Abbey. Okay. It's, it's pretty posh, isn't it? Well, when you approach the front doors of the castle, there are these imposing doors and then above the door is this motto. In fact, the motto appears 
above the front door and then it appears in, uh, on, on every first floor window and and just to remind everybody in the castle it shows up several times once you go inside the family motto now i can't read that motto because it's 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 old norman french and i just know contemporary oaky So here's what that motto means. I'm going to tell you what that motto means, then I'm going to sit down. The motto means this. Only one will I serve. Only one will I serve. Church, who will your one be? Take your time but you just have two minutes. <laughs> Heavenly Father, oh, Jesus, thank you for showing us reality. Give us the wisdom to do your will with passion and fervor and grace. Lord, we love you. God, help us. In your name we pray. And the church said, amen.